Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Eric Pham is a director who started his career in visual effects, and during this time he worked very extensively under the great Robert Rodriguez on such films as Spy Kids, Grindhouse, and one of my personal favorites, Sin City. His newest movie, Flay, is a nightmarish thriller about a supernatural entity of an ancient Native American shaman who wreaks bloody havoc on the people who summoned him. Eric actually faced a lot of heat from Sony due to the resemblance his character had to Slenderman. Sony had the rights to Slenderman, and they issued him a cease and desist, and Eric actually fought back. He took the entire thing to court, which, as far as I'm concerned, is simply badass. If you're an indie director and a juggernaut like Sony is trying to take you to court and you say, yeah, let's go... That's exactly what he did. The guy's kind of a badass. Long story short, he got his movie released two years after rapping, and Flay is now set for an April 2nd release on Amazon, iTunes, and other streaming services. He has a lot of good stories, and I had a lot of fun speaking with him. Here is director, producer, Eric Pham. So how you doing overall? I'm doing good. Are you in L.A.? Um... I used to live in LA, but now I'm in Austin, Texas. It's an awesome town. I mean, so many filmmakers flock here because it's one of the few smaller towns that have consistent, you know, buzz because of Rodriguez. I was going to say, yeah. Ladder and, uh, you know, just a lot of good people here. Yeah, he has Troublemakers Studios all set up over there in Austin, right? Yep, yep. Yeah. I mean, that's, where I, that's why I moved to Austin in the first place. Cause oh, is that right? Before, you know, what other city can you say there's consistent big blockers movies being made all the time? Yeah. L.A., New York, Austin. But then Atlanta, too. Now it's just crazy. Yeah, Atlanta's picking up. And I think Dallas is trying to do more stuff, too. But uh, that's great, man. Are you do you still work with them? Because I know you were you you did a few movies with Robert Rodriguez, right? Yeah, I worked with him since Spy Kids 3. um, And then I ended up the last one I did with him was uh, Grindhouse. Nice. Yeah. Nice. That's where I, after that, I start going on my own. You know, I wanted his job. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, well, that was actually one of my questions. How did you make the transition from doing digital effects to directing? Right, right. Um, well, the time where I wanted to get into filmmaking was the time where I started doing visual effects. And I thought, you know, it's a great way to get my foot in the door learn about the process and just really uh, work my way up. But I got stuck in visual effects for, you know, 10 years because it just kept rolling to other projects and it kept being interesting to me. Yeah. Because when you're doing visual effects, you're not just one film. I mean, literally, you work on many, many big, big films. Uh, I met a lot of different directors working visual effects because I was doing visual effects supervising too. Um, so it's a great way to just learn all the post stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, what were you some? Real- of, what's that? No, no. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, what was some of the kind of visual effects that you were working on? I mean, were you doing backgrounds? Were you doing lighting, special effects, all of the above? It was a little bit of everything because my background is uh, design, mm-hmm. and so um, it was just a natural fit to me to do visuals in terms of compositing. I did a lot of compositing in the beginning. Yeah. And then it became where 
my highlight was Sin City, where I was, I have three credits. First time I had three credits in a movie. Oh, wow. I was visual effects supervisor for the 2D compositing. I was title designer. Nice. And I was color timing supervisor. So I worked with colors for the Sin City. You know? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah as far really as visual fun. effects, that's probably one of my favorite examples yeah. of just groundbreaking, it's, gorgeous yeah, effects. It still stands out today, you know? Yeah. Oh, it works so bright. well today. Still, I even like number two. Not a lot of people did, but I loved a Dame to Kill for. I thought it was great. It was just more of that world. I think they should take the rest of the Sin City stories that they haven't made into a movie and do a TV show. Now that he's got a whole network, now that there's El Rey, right. Rodriguez and yeah. Frank Miller should finish up the last few chapters <laughs> as like a That's TV not show. A bad idea. That's right. Not a bad idea. But it is Frank Miller's work, so yeah. You know, you have to do with his blessing and all that. Yeah. Well, but I'm that sure was, that was a great. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty. What was it like working on that? It was amazing because you know I saw firsthand how Robert is such a talented guy that we basically did a ten-minute short, you know, an intro, and based on that, we nailed down the look, we nailed down all the issues that could arise from doing some such a big adaptation, and you know, within a week, he got it the rights from Frank Miller to do together with Frank Miller and he got Bruce Willis the same week Jessica Alba everyone came on board because of that 10 minute little short we did that was we so spent smart. about three three months doing it but it was a it was a nice way to work all the kinks out even before the real production started oh wow so that's sure and for people who don't know because I'm recording this they before making Sin City, Robert Rodriguez made a ten minute short, which is the opening scene of the film with Josh Harnett. Basically. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And yes. what's her name? Marley Shelton. And right. uh, he used that to sell other people, including Frank Miller, who never wanted to to adapt Sin City. And right, he was, because you know, you had to show how is this gonna be done in the first place. Yeah. Is it gonna live up to the expectation and the image that, you know, Frank Miller held so dearly mm -hmm. as a little baby he didn't want to give it to anyone <laughs> yeah yeah he had to see for himself oh okay this looks the way i intended to look. i thought that was a brilliant move because it's one thing to just try to persuade people it's another thing to show them what you have in mind because i mean words do not mean a lot particularly in hollywood but to actually no, no. have a proof of concept and say this is exactly what we'll do that was yeah. that was super smart so you worked on that I mean, Right, but it was it was difficult at first because everyone was scratching the head. How should this be done? Mm. And um, you know, I remember the meeting very, very fresh in my mind. Where, I mean, Troublemaker at the time, we had a very small group of guys working for Robert, six six or seven guys or something. And I was one of them, and we all sat in the room in front of Robert, and he goes, "So, how are we gonna do this, guys?" <laughs> it was like dead silence, you know. Someone suggested, well, we could do 3D, do everything 3D. And I was like, look, Robert, this comic book is perfect the way it is. Every frame of Frank Miller did is golden. Why, why mess with it? We can use that as storyboards, do everything green screen, where you have control of color, composition, everything. So that's how we did it. Everything was green screen, and so backgrounds could be 3D generated, but with the same look as the contrast look of the foreground elements, which is all the actors. Yeah. No, it was such a magical visual combination that seemed like it had a real simplicity to it, but those images are so beautiful. Yeah. It was so, so give, well done. Yeah, you have to give it up to Frank Miller, though. I mean, he, he was the 
genius behind the comic book. Yeah. Yeah, that's why it was such a great collaboration between somebody like Frank Miller, who's a, a real true artist yeah. and a great writer as well. And then somebody like Robert Rodriguez, who's a tr total visionary and come up with ideas and images. So did he basically come to you guys and say, how are we going to make this? Or did he have yes. an idea? Yes. So you, that's, okay. That's how it happened. We sat in his office and we kind of worked it out. And I, you know, I was the only one who spoke up and said, this, this is the only way you could do it. And, Truly, it is the only way to do right, to match that uh, vision, to match the look, you know? Yeah. It was still a lot of working out the kinks to match the look, but I think we came up with a very true look of the comic book. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it was pretty pretty amazing. And then a bunch of other people started following suit, like Zack Snyder yeah. did 300, right, right. and then 300. Frank Miller did The Spirit. I think there were a couple other ones, but yeah. But yeah, you yeah. guys were the first. Yeah, Zack Snyder team actually called us, called us up, and you know, kind of picked our brains. So how should we be doing this look? Oh wow! <laughs> and, and we gave him some samples. Okay, here's an in-between look you can use, and they, they went with the in-between look. It's not so contrasty, hmm. but enough to have the graphic look. Yeah, it was interesting the way they did theirs. It was very, it was totally different from Sin City, although obviously inspired by it in a big way. Yeah. But it was enough of a contrast between the two visual styles that it did right. not seem like it was entirely copied. You know, yeah, didn't seem but like it was have, derivative. You have to give that to Frank Miller though, because they follow the comic book pretty closely too in terms of key visual images. Yeah, I mean that's that's Frank Miller. Yeah, I don't think he does, he gets enough credit. No, I, th I, mean, I totally agree with you, too. I'm waiting for them to do the Frank Miller Batman movie and have Batman, just the oh. way that Frank Miller envisioned it, a real right. hard R, and do it super dark. And I want to see Frank Miller's yep. Batman. But did you know know that Batman versus Superman was a take on Frank Miller's comic book? Oh, really? That was Frank Miller comic book. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. But they that. didn't... Yeah, certain key images came from the comic book. Again, Interesting. Frank, Frank Miller didn't get credit for that. It's not right, man. It's definitely not right. <laughs> well, cool. Let's uh, let's uh, let's talk about Flay. Yeah. So yeah. how um how did how did this project come about? Where did the idea come from, and how did you how what's how did you get it made? Flay originally it was totally um, my idea is partly based on my own experience with ghosts. Whoa. I actually saw a ghost when I was eight years old. This is when I was in Vietnam. I was born in Vietnam. And I actually went into my parents' bedroom and saw this weird figure in a white kind of robe. They had no face. I was, I was literally just uh, frozen Whoa. for seconds before I had the nerves to run out. But then every time I think back, there was just no face. It was very eerie, you know. It stuck with me for a long time. And then... When the whole Slenderman mythology came about, I kept researching it. It's like, you know, Slenderman was taken from the Japanese mythology of the Pirobo, which is a faceless ghost. Oh. That went back centuries ago. And then there was all the cultures that had faceless kind of uh, ghosts. Native Americans has faceless dolls, and their mythology had some faceless figures in it. So I realized, look, Slenderman is not that original it took from other cultures and even the creative slenderman who quote unquote created the first image that was contributed by other contributors in the community who said oh, hey 
why do you add this to it? Why do you add this kind of storyline to it? So it was a community kind of created mythology. So it's not just one person. Because I did see the first image of, I think, I think it's Eric Knutson. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. And it was nothing like the Slenderman today. So mm-hmm. I go, you know, it's very interesting that my own experiences, other cultures' experiences, kind of contributed to this whole Slenderman myth. So I said, no, that's very interesting to me. I think I want to do a movie on that. And I created, I, I created a backstory, an origin story, that is wholly original. It's a Native American backstory. Uh huh. Kim Wow. Because that's another area that I think, you know, fictional-wise, not really enough stories have been told about the whole Native American story and mythology. So I said, I thought that was an interesting combination. That's how it came about. And um, I worked with a screenwriter, Matthew Daly, and we kind of collaborate. I mean, he he was the screenwriter, but I, I had a lot of input into creating the whole mythology, the story. And to me... I never wanted to do a slasher movie. My inspiration has always been like more of a Hitchcock thriller. Hmm. So, I, I, so I wouldn't call mine a horror. Hmm. So I started on the basis of relationships between the characters and a mystery to be solved. Where did this character come from? How, why is he haunting people? And so the whole plot revolves around that more Hitchcock like rather than, you know, horror slasher type. Got it. Got it. Well, cool. It was a lot of fun. And you did, obviously, you did all the visual effects for it? I was visual effects supervisor, and I did put my hands in a lot of the vision. Have you seen the movie? Or screened it? Okay, yeah. All the visions that they, you know, Moon, El Lamont goes through, that, that was me. And a lot of visual effects was just guided by me. I couldn't do everything, but I did a big yeah. chunk of it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So what were the steps that you had to take in getting the movie made? I mean, once you had the idea, how what, what did it take to get it from idea to, to final cut? Well, like every independent maker, it's always funding, right? That's the f- biggest hurdle. For me, I got really lucky, you know? I had a, a friend who was very interested, uh, who became my executive producer, Jared, um, who, you know help with the first chunks of funding and then I had other fundings pretty much by luck you know I just meet people and they go hey what are you working on well I'm working on this movie for me I never do a hard sell I don't go hey can you give me money to fund this I just tell them about my project if they're truly interested they keep asking me more about it and I keep telling about it and when you get to the certain point they actually approach me hey I have some money (laughs) can I invest in your stuff I said sure please nice you know, so it came together relatively easy for me. And then after that, it was just, you know, just getting into production as soon as we can. Um, we had some, you know, issues along the way just because Texas is a hot state, especially in the summertime. Did you That's film in shot. Austin? Yeah, we did. We shot everything in Austin. Nice. So uh, the heat was a little hard to deal with, but, you know, we got through it and uh, everything was on schedule. Until Sony came along. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. Tell that story. <laughs> I mean, we were set to have a release March of 2017. Oh. And weeks before, 
they found out about release, they sent cease and desist to our distributor. And everyone got scared because it's like, I don't want to deal with lawsuits. I'm a distributor, right? So they Especially said, with okay, a major fuck. company like Sony. Right. So immediately they say, sorry, we can't help you. we got to shut down. Oof. And so I was stuck in limbo for months and months. I didn't know what to do. And so after a while, we just figured, okay, we got to do something about it. I mean, we can't just sit around and just let someone... To me, my personal thing, it was not a good enough claim to say, hey, we own everything about Slenderman because I've, I've done my research. Yeah, so Sony claimed to, because Sony was doing the Slenderman movie, they claimed that they owned the image of Slenderman outright. That's like when Pixar was doing Coco and they wanted to claim Day of the Dead. It's like, you can't own that suddenly. (laughs) Exactly. And I know I'm not the only one that happened to. I've seen other feature films who they announced on YouTube, hey, we're coming out with a feature film, and then suddenly it shuts down. So I'm not not the first. Yeah. I think I am the first to challenge them. Mm Mm-hmm. To a lawsuit. Did you go to lawsuit? lawsuit? Yes, we had to sue Sony to say, hey, um, please judge, let us know who actually owns this thing and what exactly do they own, you know, because it's it's clearly shown that it's not a one person created thing. I mean, trademark wise, yes, you can own the words, any words, yep. if you actually use it. So I, I, can, I grant them that, you know, you can own the word Slender, but the whole mythology, I don't think that could be owned by one entity. No, and the imagery, it's even just, though it wasn't, you weren't doing a movie on Slender Man. That wasn't necessarily Slender Man. Right. That was Flay. That was your own creation. Right. You can't right. own the idea right. of, a, of being without a face. Like that's, so you right. went to, you I mean, brought this to court, man. Good for you. That's amazing. You went up against a juggernaut like Sony. How did yeah, that turn only, out? It only took a year, but, you know, they settled, resettled. And, um, you know, we now have the legal rights to distribute play. <laughs> well, good for you and for it, not backing down, man. That's amazing. It only took a year. <laughs> it could be, still, it could have taken much longer. With, the, with some of those major companies, they can keep you in limbo for like five years or ten years. Right. I mean, that was a choice for us. We came down to the conclusion, look, we could actually win this. But it would take another couple of years. Two or three years minimum. Oof. And I, I did not want to be stuck in a lawsuit for two, three years. Yeah. I need to get this out, move on. You know, I had other projects in line. So we both settled, and I'm very happy with the results. You know, we now have the legal right to distribute our film. And we are. April 2nd, that's when it's coming out. iTunes, Amazon. Awesome. Man. Yeah. Very, very cool. So I know you had directed a documentary before and some other. Was this your technically your first narrative feature? It's my second narrative feature. Okay. I was hired as a director to do a film called Action News 5, which is a teen comedy. Okay. Uh, we shot it in Orlando, Florida. And uh, funny enough, that hasn't been released. Oh, man. <laughs> because uh, I think the producer, because I wasn't the producer, I was purely a uh, director, you know, the executive producer that. Um, I think he's about to release. I'm just not sure what's going on with that because I don't really have control over that. Mm-hmm. So technically, this will be my first feature film released. <laughs> okay, it's my my really my second feature film that I directed. Very cool. That's great. So as a as a filmmaker, as you moved into directing, is there any advice that you have for first time directors? Anything yes. that you would? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. There's lots that I've learned through my second feature film there. I mean, 
the number one advice I'd give is prepare, you know, spend as much time pre-production as you can because the more prepared you are, the more you can take risk on set. You know, you get your needed shots out of the way and then you have extra time. Go ahead, improvise, do something cool, work with whatever environment you have. So, but then it also starts with the script. I mean, I made the mistake of loving the script too much. Our script was 106 pages. And, you know, we end up with 93 and a half minutes. So we chopped out 15 minutes worth. That could have been a lot of money saved and a lot of time saved if right. I edited it in the script. Right. But, you know, you fall in love with stuff. I and mean, that's hard to let go once you fall in love with things. So it was good for me to actually give it some space after production to jump to editing to go, okay, I love this scene, but it needs to go for the sake of flow and pacing of the movie. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with the pacing right now. I mean, 15 minutes, it's, it's, it's painful at first to let go of the 15 minutes of footage and yeah. scenes, but you know, it's for the betterment of the movie itself. Got it. So prep, prep, prep. Yeah, fair. Yeah, I feel like it's common with people who make when when somebody makes a movie, they end up having to cut stuff out, and it's painful not because the footage is so great, but because they spend so much time, money, and yes, and yes. time on set filming it. So it's it's so important to have a lean script from the get go. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And then the other thing I would recommend for first time filmmakers is you have to make a difference in terms of knowing who you are as a filmmaker. Because otherwise, if you're just doing purely for money or purely for just the sake of being in a horror genre or whatever genre you want to do, it's not enough because then you'd be like everyone else who's just trying to crank one out right. and trying to stay within a certain genre. You have to put a little bit of your own history, your own personality in terms of story or whatever, you know, visuals. Otherwise, you can't stand out from the crowd. I mean, the age of... You know, digital filmmaking makes it so easy for anyone to make a film. You know, mm-hmm. you can do one on your iPhone, and one has been done on your iPhone. Yeah, but that's totally what, true. What is going to make you stand out from the crowd? That's what I. The second thing I would ask first-time filmmakers to really think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. So obviously when it comes to filmmaking, there's so many resources out there. There's a lot of books, there's courses. A lot of it is written by people who have never done it before, and it's a lot of BS. But were there any any resources or books that were particularly helpful for you as a director, either from a career perspective or from a skill perspective? Yeah, I mean, my favorite books for filmmaking, of course, I have favorite filmmakers, so I read all their works. I mean, my favorite filmmakers are... Akira Kurosawa, yeah. Ridley Scott, one of my favorite filmmakers. Blade Runner was the reason why I said I want to be a filmmaker. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I was just, I was just mesmerized. Yeah. Blade Runner is just awesome. Film. And then um, my other favorite filmmaker, Hitchcock. So I really study my favorite filmmakers first. And then to read about or to study filmmaking, I mean, my other favorite books are like... Uh, the Hero's Journey, you know. Oh, by Joseph, um, Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell, right. And then um, Hitchcock, Truffaut. There was a book where Truffaut collaborated with Hitchcock to make this book. And it's very visual. I mean, it's a great way to learn. Okay, these are basically the storyboards for mm-hmm. the filmmaking process of Hitchcock. It's very valuable, you know. Yeah, I and have that third, book. 
Yeah, you did. It's a yeah. great book. I haven't read it yet, but I own it. It's awesome. I'm going to check it out now. There's even a documentary you can watch. Oh, that's right. Yeah. HBO did that documentary. Yeah. It's called yeah. Truffaut. No, Truffaut on Hitchcock. No, Hitchcock on Truffaut. I yes, don't know right. who's on who. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a great film. Okay, And cool. then the third book I would recommend is uh, in, the bl- in the Blink of an Eye. I think that's by... God, I forgot the, it was an editing book. I think okay. every filmmaker should know about editing. Yeah. Because for me, I'm a very visual person. On set, if I improvise, I can see the edit in my head hmm. to know what I need to shoot, not shoot. It makes it a little more simplified. You know? You're more efficient and you don't need to shoot other stuff. Why shoot other stuff? Just shoot what you need. But, you know, not everyone can do that. So that's why you have to do storyboards. Yeah. That makes all the sense in the world. Cool. Well, great, man. What uh, What's next for you? I see on IMDb that Flay 2 is already on its way. Well, we're working on the feature film script. Um, really delving into more of the origin story. Hmm. Um, but, you know, script can be a long process or a short process. I'm not sure if this is going to be long or not. But next on my project list is uh, I have a novel adaptation called Tinder and Flint by Matthew Daly. Oh, cool. He's He lives in Austin. He writes a series of fantasy novels, which I love. Very, very uh, cool books that I've uh, written a feature film script already to be adapted. And we're actually talking about perhaps maybe a TV series on that. Oh, wow. That's great. And then, yeah. And then the most current project that I'm actually working on production-wise is a uh, TV series. We're actually shooting a short pilot, mini pilot, but I'm working with Cross Creek Pictures. They're a great company, a bunch of great guys. Tommy and Timmy uh, Thompson, and a good friend of mine, David Hostler. Mm-hmm. That's very exciting because it's sci-fi. It's oh, that's super arena. cool. I love lots of cool visual effects. But again, I don't do for the visual effects. I do for the story. And it's yeah. a really, really humanizing, great epic story. Yeah. Are you I still doing? I, Sorry. I can't say much about it. I just, I just know it's epic and it's, it's going to be great. <laughs> nice, man. That sounds pretty awesome. Are you still doing visual effects? Um, not really. No, no. I mean, I've helped out friends or people I've known in the past with visual effects, but I'm too busy doing the writing, directing, producing things. And yeah. That's I can, I, more I than a full-time job. Behind. Yeah, it of is, course. Yeah. Cool. All right, great. Hey, man, this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate the time. And, uh, yeah, no problem. So Flay comes out on April 2nd, which is right around the corner, and it's going to be on iTunes. Amazon first, and then we're going to expand to other platforms. Very cool. week after. Okay, great. Great, man. Cool. Well, thanks a lot. All right, big thanks to Eric Pham for taking the time to speak to us today. Really, really enjoyed this conversation. Don't forget to check out Flay. It's going to be available on Amazon and iTunes and other streaming services on April 2nd. If you enjoyed this episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show, don't forget to share it with your friends and family on social media. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Horror Show.